every species that becomes sentient and develops technology that is sufficient to start creating signals that propagate through the universe eventually also hits this inflection point, which we may be close to, wherein the power of the technology becomes uncontrollable and they destroy themselves for one of a million different reasons. Hello there from Bedford. Yes, I'm home. I'm back home after a long trip out in the US. I just want to say thanks to everybody who came out. We had about a week in Nashville making podcasts. Then we went up to Austin and made some podcasts. And then I went out and made this film about mining, which I really can't wait to get out to you. Traveled all over Texas. Also went up to Oklahoma, dipped into Arkansas and Louisiana. It was an incredible trip, and I'm really excited to get this film out. I learned so much about Bitcoin mining. Anyway, listen, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Jameson Lop back on the phone. Now, Jameson was the third person I ever interviewed for the podcast. I went out to Raleigh, shot some guns with him, and learned all about the tech side of Bitcoin. And you know, back then, I didn't understand anything he was talking about. But he stayed a friend. We've made a few podcasts since. But this is the first time we've recorded in person in a while. Now, this was recorded not long after Luke Dasher reported up on Twitter that he'd had some of his Bitcoin hacked. So Jameson was the perfect person to talk about Bitcoin security with. Now, we've covered security with Jameson a lot, but he's also a technologist. So we got into some other things. We talked about AI, ChatGBT, Nostra, and a whole bunch of other stuff. It was a fascinating show. Always great to catch up with Jameson. Now, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. I've had a lot of emails recently. I am trying to catch up, but please do reach out. I will get back to you. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Anyway, over to the show. Over to Jameson. Morning, Jameson. Good morning. Good to see you again. Uh, what is this? How many times have recorded in person? Is this the third one? That sounds about right. We might have done a few remote interviews as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a very different setup from the first time, where it was just me and my little trolley. Yeah, to be fair, uh, you were the first person that ever actually brought like professional equipment. And I was like, who is this guy who's flying thousands of miles to set up like a professional studio in my home? Well, it wasn't as professional as this. And we didn't have producer Danny. We didn't have Jeremy. Did it all on my own. Uh, we should tell that story. I think we've told it before. Tell it again for people that don't know. So that was my third ever show. That was, when was it, Danny? Uh, December 2017. So it's five years ago. Uh, my third episode. So I was inspired to make the podcast by this guy, Rich Roll, who did all his interviews in person. So I was like, I'm going to do them all in person. So I did my first one when I was in LA with Luke Martin. Then I was in the UK and I did it with uh, Trader... Coin Trader Nick. Coin Trader Nick. And then... Um, and then this fate, like it's a famous picture of you. You know the picture. You should. We'll have to flash that up. Uh, I see this dude on Twitter with this huge beard, a massive gun, and a make Bitcoin great again hat. And I was like, I need to interview this guy. So I just went on your website, and uh, I emailed you. And I, I'm, I can't remember the email. I wonder if we could find. Oh, that. I'm sure I can find it. I have really? everything. Yeah. Oh, we should dig that out. But I'm sure it was something on the lines of, "Hi, I've launched a podcast. Can I come and interview you? I'll fly from the UK, and can you take me to shoot a gun?" And I turn up at your house, and there are fucking guns everywhere. How many guns would there have been? Oh, dozens. Yeah. And bear in mind, I'd never seen a gun before. And so you took me shooting. We made a podcast. Got some barbecue. I should tell that story as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's only me talking about it. Sorry, I know I'm interviewing Jameson. Um, I, was a, I was a vegan at the time, because uh, my mum... i got to get the dates right. But anyway, I went vegan. 
and you took me to this barbecue place and I was in there thinking, fucking hell, I can't. How do I turn around to this guy with big guns and Bitcoin and say I'm a vegan? Can I have, can I have some potato without, God, I couldn't even have the salad. I'm sure there were a couple of options, but you know, I had to take you to a real, authentic, hole-in-the-wall barbecue shack in North Carolina. Well, that was the day I stopped being a vegan because I was like, well, I can't do this. And I was like, actually, this tastes good. Actually, do you know what really I remember from that? Do you remember there was an old guy in there I was talking to? I can't Ooh, find the full picture, but it was this one, wasn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. you got to find the one with the gun, though. Yeah. You, you can definitely find the one. Uh, you know, Peter Thiel actually put... Uh, me and Vitalik in his presentation at Bitcoin in ah. 2022. So you don't remember the old guy in there? Uh, vaguely, not really. So I was chatting to this old guy in there and he was like, where are you from, boy? <laughs> I was like, uh, I'm from uh, Bedford, it's near London. And he's like, and he was chatting away and I was like, I remember saying to him like, oh, have you ever been? And he said something along the lines of, I've never left the county. It Sounds wasn't about right. I haven't left it's not I haven't left the state. He'd never left the county. Oh, there we go. Look at that man. What a <laughs> fucking badass. <laughs> uh, although you do look like somebody who would have gone to the um Capitol building on January the sixth. Yeah, you know, it's it's a funny story how that all worked out, right? Is it you know, things take a life of their own. And the fact that I did this as a satirical video on request for someone, nobody knows that anymore. Even you probably know don't that. know that. No, no, I did this for um, Bitcoin Car Talk um, way that, back yeah. in the day. Was that Mike in Space? Yeah, Mike in Space. Mike in Space, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I did this way over the top, you know, hilarious sort of gunned up Bitcoin maximalist uh, video and he put it in the, the intro to Bitcoin car talk, one of those episodes. And of course, people took screenshots of it. And then the, my favorite, of course, is the people who uh, transposed this against Vitalik wearing his like unicorn <laughs> pajama onesie thing. Um, but you know, these are, these things are all just memes. And that's one of the hilarious things about this space is the memetics of it. Have you seen this picture before? Yeah. Yeah. You look like a fucking badass. <laughs> I mean, the glasses, the hat, the gun, you look body hinge. armor. Yeah, oh, you got, uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to tell because yeah, yeah. I'm wearing so much black. But but you'd also do look like a January the sixth. <laughs> uh, I love that picture. That was um, that was a, a very early show we made, and I came to ask you technical stuff. And honestly, I had no fucking idea what you're talking about. Well, but, hopefully, you've learned a little since then. A little bit. I learned what an ex-pub is. I learned what an extended public key is. Anyway, dude, welcome back. It's good. Oh, we recorded another time in person. In New York, in that little studio. Was that around one of the consensus conferences? Yes. Yeah. That was one of my first in-person interviews with a camera. We rented the studio, and then we went and got burgers. Yeah, long time ago, man. Well, listen, uh, thank you very much for doing that interview, because you said yes, and that essentially kick-started getting known incredible Bitcoin people, because, all right, it's Litecoin, but that... You got me then Charlie Lee, and yep. Charlie Lee got me so-and-so, and that started the whole journey. Yeah, so well, You did the hard work. Yeah, but you said yes. and That was the easy part. It, yeah, but it, it isn't really, because I imagine, yeah, in various times, you've had lots of requests. I, I very rarely say no. Oh, I don't feel special. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people say, said no early on, or a lot of people didn't reply. Um, but getting that yes was like a big deal. It, it that show was a credible show that went out and gave me credibility. So I owe you a debt of gratitude for that and various things. So thank you, Jameson. Um, yeah, welcome back. Uh, how are things at Casa? 
you know, typical bear market uh, shenanigans, uh, but people are hodling. And, and so that's good. I mean, you know, from a business perspective, Casa compared to a lot of the other businesses in the space, you know, we're a subscription service. So the, that has pros and cons. The pros are you have some fairly reliable annual revenue. And so we don't get hit as hard as the, the people who are doing BIPs or you know, basically taking a cut of some other activity. Um, that's good during the bear markets. The downside is that we don't see the same uh, you know, straight up uh, a wall type of revenue increases during the crazy hype cycles. So give and take. Yeah, I mean, you like on the subscription more. I mean, it's not che- cheap for the, uh, the the package I have. You have a gold, a platinum, and a yeah. We have a diamond. F- we have a couple premium tiers yeah. that are thousands of dollars a year, and then our our sort of baseline gold tier is about one hundred and twenty a year. Yeah, I mean, it's a big jump for some people to make that step. And I I found with Castle one, I had it for a while before I used it. Like that first step of going through the process of uh, setting up your multi-sig, it's actually really easy. Yeah. Once you've done it, it's super easy. Yeah, but people are afraid. Yeah, because it's, you know, for like people like me who are non-technical, a wallet is a big step, like a hardware wallet. The word multi-signature, like, is it actually, is that two words? Yeah. But it's one word is multi-sig. You can hyphenate it's it, hyphenate you can do it one word. Yeah. and This fluid, this, uh, <laughs> this fluid term, uh, it's kind of intimidating. So what do you mean? I, I have to sign with multiple keys and I have to hide multiple keys? And, and that logic of where, you know, you put your keys. So we'll get into that. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Ethereum thing. Sure. Um, I'm not critical, but I am interested uh, in the motivations, the impact uh, of that. I, I saw the criticism, obviously, died down, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have sponsors who have uh, uh, support multiple coins, you know, some shit coins doesn't bother me. We do know there's a section of the community who will react. Oh, yeah, completely predictable. Yeah. So, uh, but I do have an important question, which I'll come to. Come to. But uh, do you want to talk about why you did it? Any of the challenges? Impact? Yeah, well, actually, the challenges, uh, there's nothing really new on the challenges side uh, in comparison to what I wrote in 2017 when I uh, was working at BitGo and we developed a multi-signature Ethereum wallet. There were a lot of challenges then. They're pretty much the same today. The main difference is that uh, you know we have, what, another five years of experience uh, to look at standards and best practices of doing multi-sig in Ethereum. And you know we didn't want to roll our own anything. We didn't want to become smart contracts contract developers. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're using a well-vetted smart contract that's already securing untold billions of dollars worth of Ether and other tokens and stuff. But, um, you know, why did we do it? Well, it's, it's all about markets, right? And so, you know, some people find this very hard to believe, but there are a lot of people out there who own both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And of course, a lot of other things, there's a long tail distribution um, and you you start to get into challenging business questions of deciding you know, where the threshold is of what makes sensitive support. But suffice to say, over the past few years, we started losing more and more deals because we didn't support Ethereum. And it hurts as a business to lose deals. And, and from a, a self-custody perspective, the thing that really irks me is when I see, and I've seen a lot of people do this, they end up choosing a trusted third-party custodian because that's the easiest way for them to secure many different 
assets. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, that just makes me cringe and it makes me angry. And so from my perspective, everything that I've ever said about Ethereum, I completely stand by, feel free to go back through any of my blog posts or podcast or whatever. My personal beliefs about Ethereum and its issues are still there, but I recognize that there are people who don't agree with that and they have this need. And I would rather see them self-custody their Ethereum uh, if that means that they're also gonna be self-custodying their Bitcoin. So I haven't seen the Ethereum interface because I don't own any or own any tokens, but is it just Ethereum or does it support the tokens as well? Oh, the smart contract that we're using could support definitely any ERC-20 token and possibly other stuff, but you know that's further down the line. We, yeah. we start out with the Ethereum token because that's what people are demanding. Yeah, because I can imagine a, the only scenario I can imagine I, I was using it is if I wanted to store some like stable coin dollar on yes and and i think that that is a logical next step i would say stable coins are probably our next greatest thing that we have received demand for and once again there are people in the space who will say stable coins are terrible and you know you're essentially you know, bringing fiat into this space which we don't need but on the other hand there's plenty of examples of utility and stable coins helping people oh no it's fucking ludicrous <laughs> like like the world runs on fiat yeah. yes we want to move to bitcoin but yeah. uh, i wouldn't live on, if i lived on a bitcoin standard entirely um my net wealth would have been crushed this last eight months and I would have struggled to pay my team on my business. So I just think that's uh, fucking ludicrous. Oh yeah, well, I mean, we could do a whole uh, episode about stable coins and all the problems with them. You know, they have, they have, of course, all the problems inherent with fiat and then they usually have a lot of centralization and, you know, security model problems too. But nonetheless, people have use for them. Well, I can imagine a scenario because like I, I have to balance between the amount of Bitcoin and fiat I hold. It's like, a, it's a, again, it's a fluid kind of balance. I have a both. But I can imagine, like I know in the UK, um, I'm only protected up to eighty-five thousand pounds, right? I can imagine a scenario where I want to de-risk some of that and maybe hold some in a stable coin on a multi-sig. There's a logical reason to do that. I don't do it at the moment, mm-hmm. but I can certainly see a uh, a stronger requirement for that in more uh, challenging markets, challenging countries. So. Like, it makes a logical sense. There's a lot of people in South America who absolutely love, need, rely, depend on stable coins. And so uh, I think the logic's there. The, the important question really is, so the thing me and Danny were talking about this morning, as a Bitcoiner, using Casa for both my football club and personally, can the introduction of Ethereum present any risk to my Bitcoin or is there a separation within the stack of the code? Right. So, as with anything, it depends on the implementation. Okay. Um, you know, I would say with a lot of the wallets out there that support a long list of assets, most of them tend to be software-based wallets. Now, there are hardware wallets, of course, that support many different things. Um, but, you know, it really comes down to what is managing the keys themselves. So, with Casa, of course we have a separation of many different concerns and we use diversity of different software and hardware. And the, the main sticking point of like, why does introducing other code into you know, the CASA app 
uh, not degrade your security with your Bitcoin. And, and that's because whenever you're having to make a transaction, you're having to go to these different hardware devices and actually verify the details of exactly what you're signing. So, of course, anything is possible if enough things go wrong, but it's like if, if you have like both a, a, a treasure and a ledger as part of your setup, you know, how would it be that you would go to sign a Bitcoin transaction and those signature operations would create some other thing that yeah. you're not anticipating? Uh, you know, but both of those companies and their whole software stacks and firmware and an upgrade process that you know would all have to be compromised. At the end of the day, anything can be compromised. We're just trying to make it as difficult as possible for that to, to happen. So the, the the short version is that you know you're you're verifying what you're doing and you're not trusting the Casa software. Yeah, um, I mean I'm staying with Casa. Love the product. Uh, it like I love I've always loved the app. But even early on when it was Jeremy Welch running the company, I said to him, "Your UX is incredible. Like it's not like a Bitcoin company. It's like a Silicon Valley Silicon Valley company. It makes for a moron like me. It makes it super easy." to manage uh, a multi-sig, so uh, I love it. I'm staying with the product. Um, but what I really wanted to ask is, because there has to be a decision there. You, have to, you, you knew what you were going to face. There is this ideology around Bitcoin only. Like I've, I've, I've ignored that myself in what we do, in that we're a Bitcoin only podcast. Mm -hmm. But like we will discuss Ethereum if it brings something relevant to the conversation with Bitcoin. Or we've discussed Monero if it brings something relevant to the conversation with Bitcoin. Or I'll have sponsors who support uh, alternative coins because if that enables us to be able to deliver this message and grow Bitcoin, we do. We, we, you know, we accept that. Um, but I... But I've lost listeners because of it. Sure, There's people who will not listen to my podcast because of that. And I don't know if you can tell me, but my expectation is you lost some customers. Because I saw some people saying online, well, I've quit. I will no longer use it. Mm -hmm. um, was that a negligible amount? Can you talk about that? Probably won't go into numbers, but I will say that what you see and hear on Twitter is greatly magnified versus reality. Um, you know, most of the people who are outraged on Twitter, assuming they're actually people, I have some evidence that there's you know some bots and civil stuff going on. I'm not I'm not of course saying that all of these uh, Twitter accounts are bots. A number of them are real people, but um, you know, I'm trying to remember actually, I think Nick Carter uh, described them as. Uh, uh, Sort of perpetually outraged grievance mob or something like I'm. I'm I know I'm, I'm screwing up his definition there, but you know, the, it's the the people who they want to complain about stuff all the time, and uh, you know, perhaps they're doing it for clout. Perhaps it's just part of their tribalism. Um, I fully could, could also be honest held beliefs. Oh, definitely, uh, and I understand the whole. Um, toxic Twitter tribe stuff. I've, uh, I've, I've played a toxic Bitcoin maximalist on several occasions I've myself. Partaken into the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and I get it. And, and we, of course, expected to lose some customers. Um, from, from a business perspective, we, of course, 
are operating under the thesis that we are growing the umbrella and growing our total addressable market and that the the hardliners who have the ideological considerations um, you know we wish them the best and and they're going to go support the the bitcoin only companies uh, the the only thing that you know kind of irked me was some of the discussions around you know people saying that you know this was degrading the security model for casa clients and it's very hard to offend me, but that is one of the things that I do get offended by is when, when, when people say that I am putting other people's funds at risk. I mean, CASA eats its own dog food. You know, we use CASA for our own corporate treasury. Our employees use CASA. You know, th this is a, a friends and family operation, right? So, um, you know, the, the claim that I would degrade the security of Bitcoiners just as a sort of cash grab to try to get, you know, Ethereum market share is offensive to me. And, you know, some people are going to believe that they're going to say that. And um, there's nothing I can do to stop that. <laughs> but we uh, are going forward with this. And, you know, there's, there's no arguing uh, against it at this point. Like we've been committed to it for over six months, probably nine months of research and development. And maybe it's a bad idea. You know, maybe we won't get a significant amount of business from it. And, you know, maybe it goes so terribly that we decide, you know, some years in the future that we drop support for it. It's, you know, anything is possible. This is a fluid environment. You know, we're, we're going to be actually, <laughs> you know, uh, I think Wire just announced that uh, they were shutting down operations or, you know, they? uh, their future is definitely in peril. And, you know, we use Wire for our buy Bitcoin stuff in the app. And so most likely that's going to be going away. You know, I don't know whether or not we're going to be replacing them with someone else. It's, it's hard to say, but, you know. It's, I didn't know why we were in trouble. Yeah, well, I think they had like a $1.5 billion um buyout that was supposed to happen and then that fell through and now apparently everything seems to be falling apart but you know that that's the nature of the space right is it um are you worth 1.5 billion are you worth shit 2022 was a terrible year to be an investor in this space um but 2022 was a great year to be a technologist and so that is the optimistic take that I'm um, kind of walking away from last year with is thankfully I consider myself a technologist first. Um, all of the other stuff is kind of tangential and a result of my interest in different technology. But that also kind of comes full circle to the fact that by many people's definition, I am a shit coiner. And I have been called a shit coiner probably you know, two or three two outrage incidents a year for the past, I don't know, four or five years. And this is because you I, I play around <laughs> with any technology that interests me. Yeah. And, you know, due to my audience, whenever I talk about any technology, you know, if there's any kind of even 
possible financial incentive there. If I even talk about it, then I'm considered as shilling that technology. You're a shitcoiner. <laughs> You're a shitcoiner such grim. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, and so you know that that was an outrage incident three or four years ago where I was running a grin node, and um, apparently that meant that I was shilling it and saying that you know people should be buying and selling it. But I never bought or sold it. I don't even know where I would have. Like none of the exchanges I had mm -hmm. accounts on even had grin support so yeah it never got listed i don't think i don't think so yeah and it had terrible economics like no, no one who looked into the economics would have invested in it remind me was it like a they had a different way of approaching privacy yeah it was a privacy coin it was yeah. using Mimblewimble, and yeah. i've been talking about Mimblewimble as a protocol since probably 2015 you know when it was the first white paper of, for Mimblewimble came out. And I guess that's the, the short version is that anyone out there should expect that I will be interested in almost anything that is going to increase privacy. So if there's a new shit coin that comes out and that it claims to have the best privacy ever in the world, you can bet that I'm going to be looking into it and playing around with it and might be talking about it. That doesn't mean it's investment advice. Yeah, listen, look, I think it's fine. And also, look, I mean, I pro like if you laid out your criticisms of Ethereum, I'd probably agree with them. Yeah, yeah I think it has uh, been a platform which has been used to uh, spread a lot of shitty projects and shitty ideas. I'm not a fan of NFTs. Uh, I am not a fan of ICOs anymore, which mainly because I lost loads of money on them. Um, uh, I'm just not really a fan of it. But, but I do find it hard to argue against uh, stable coins and their mm -hmm. usage. We don't have, uh, I don't believe we have a usable, decent stable coin of Bitcoin. And uh, it's very hard to argue against that, especially when we talked to Alex Gladstein. He talks about how people in these countries are uh, using uh, stable coins. And, and even when Bitcoin is like, well, no, they should be using Bitcoin, I, I actually just think it's a moronic statement because these people are already challenged maybe by high inflation or capital controls, um, this is an option for them. And people will refer to the tool that's available. So it doesn't bother me. I'm shouting at people about Ethereum is not making it go away. And we will be seeing stable coins on Bitcoin, uh, you know, on Lightning. And we will be seeing the same crowd of people then decrying the fact that people are using Bitcoin for fiat operations. May, so. may, well, I think that would be a subset. Yeah. I, I think, um, again, most normal... I, I think people who criticize stable coins on uh, any platform, my expectation is they live a privileged life and don't understand the difficulties that other people have. I think people will always find a tool that helps them. But uh, my analogy for this is... People don't really like it. But my analogy for you guys supporting Ethereum is kind of like cigarettes. <laughs> In that you can absolutely hate Ethereum and still use Casa. Mm -hmm. Just as you can absolutely hate cigarettes and still go to the liquor store and buy a bottle of whiskey. You know, it is just something you don't like, you don't agree with, a market that's lied about what it is, what it represents, that you know has some kind of like negative uh, connotations attached with it, but you you can just not buy it. Yeah, you can go and buy your bottle of whiskey and leave, and not buy any cigarettes. You can go and uh, multi sig with uh, Casa and store your Bitcoin, and not buy Ethereum. Yeah, uh, I think the the short version is that I will never apologize for, and I will, and I will never never feel bad about helping people improve their security, regardless of what that is, even if it's security for an asset that I'm not interested in and that a lot of people hate. Uh, the YouTube's going to be on fire. <laughs> okay. Can we talk about Luke 
Dasha and what happened this week. We can try. We can try. Okay. Uh, big outrage uh, on Twitter. Also, some horrible dunking, which I I didn't like at all. Yeah. But um, my main issue with it was, uh, I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. Okay. Uh, yeah. Storing Bitcoin for me is very simple. You, you, some people do it in exchange. Some people do it on a software wallet on their phone. Some people do it on a hardware wallet. Some people have multi-sig. When he explained the scenario, what went wrong, I just I just fundamentally didn't understand it. He talked about PGP. Mm-hmm. I tried to use PGP. It's not moron friendly. Right. It's very tricky tool to use. So I didn't understand it. So I'm like, I'm just going to like throw it to you. Uh, talk me through what happened. Well, to kind of set the stage, uh, our information is incomplete. So even anything that I'm going to say is somewhat speculative and based upon partial information and tweets and, you know, a few conversations that I've seen. So take anything that I say with a grain of salt because it could be wrong. But my understanding is that uh, Luke had a setup that actually dated back 10 years. Uh, He said that he had like generated these keys in 2012. Uh, So that means, you know, this is pre-hierarchical deterministic wallet, you know, pre-seed phrase. It's just a bunch of keys. Uh, Hold on, hierarchical deterministic wallets are seed phrases. Seed phrases, yes. Uh, so, so this is most likely he had a uh, you know a Bitcoin Core wallet dot dat file that okay. had just a bunch of private keys in it, and it sounds like what he was doing was he was securing that by encrypting it with PGP. So, you know, at rest. He had this big data blob, which if anybody got a hold of that data blob, they couldn't do anything with it because you have to have the decryption key to actually be able to get the data and then use the private keys related to it. Now, at some point a few months ago, he started talking about uh, one or more of his servers being compromised. What we don't know is how the servers got compromised. Some theories are that there was an insider employee attack at his data hosting provider who physically you know, accessed his server. Uh, some people are speculating that you know, it could have been some sort of software exploit, you know, some sort of vulnerability. But you know, the speculation is that that most likely was sort of the entry point into what eventually turned into the compromise of his coins. What we don't know is exactly where he was keeping that wallet file. Uh, most likely, I think you know it was on one or more of his computers at his home, not on his server, uh, from what I've seen him talk about. That's still a hot environment. Yeah, I mean, it's still an internet-connected computer, which you know, Generally, we would call that a hot wallet, even though the keys were encrypted at rest. And so what we don't know is how that attacker, assuming it's the same attacker, which seems likely, how that attacker got from compromising his server to compromising his home machines or whatever machines uh, the actual keys were kept on. The PGP key. Uh, and and the uh, the wallet itself but he you know he did say at some point his pgp key got compromised presumably that was not on the server and that was also on his home machines and you know if that was the key that he was also using to encrypt the wallet file you know that would have been game over or you know if he had some other really long decryption uh, phrase uh, for the wallet file you know if 
his machine that he was using to access it had a key logger. Then eventually, once he decided to open up and you know, decrypt that wallet, then the attacker would have had everything. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast. And I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. So let's go into the Jameson lot world. My expectation is you have something that scans your computer to look for key loggers and things like that. Is that possible? Does that exist? Well, it depends, right? So uh, I actually don't have any antivirus that I run. I mean, all of my machines are, are Linux machines. They're generally fairly hardened. Um, but also, I don't keep any key material on them. So even even my PGP keys, for example, I, I don't actually have those on my laptops or my other machines. I keep those on a YubiKey, which is it's just another dedicated device that does nothing except hold secrets. So, you know, this is another thing getting back to Luke. Um, it's It sounds to me like he, he was not using dedicated hardware devices for any of his key material his PGP key material, his wallet key material. Um, I think most people would agree that had he been using dedicated devices that are not internet-connected devices, then that would have mitigated this attack. But uh, for various reasons, and I won't speak for him, uh, Luke does not believe in using hardware devices uh, for, for his key material. Huh. I would love to ask him that question and find out what the answer is. 
Um, so if you're storing a PGP key on a UBIT key, mm -hmm. at some point, if you want to transfer some Bitcoin in a hot environment, you have to either type it out or paste it. Yeah, they're the two options. Well, if we try to apply using a YubiKey for what we believe Luke's setup was, you know, if he had his wallet file encrypted with his uh, PGP key, then he would run an operation or he would run a command um, to decrypt those keys. And instead of pasting in a passphrase to decrypt them, uh, his YubiKey, he would have to insert that into the computer and then it would start blinking and you'd have to physically tap it uh, in order to access it and, and do that decryption operation. I'm thinking if his machine is compromised, a keylogger would be able to uh, like note, note the keys that are being pressed. Can they also note copy and paste? Oh, this this is what has been pasted. Oh yeah, anything that's copy and pasted, like any anything that is input or output from the computer, uh, could potentially be uh, sucked up by that malware. So you know, even if you were, even if you kept your PGP key on a YubiKey, as soon as you decrypted the file on that compromised machine, it would load the contents yeah, that's in the, the memory. That, that was my next question. And, and any good malware would also be looking at what, what is currently in memory and, and siphoning that off. So even, even in that environment, the fact, I mean, it sounds to me like it doesn't matter even if he has the UBIT key, keeping that wallet file in a hot environment is just massive risk. Yeah, I mean, it, it creates uh, an incredibly large attack surface. And this kind of, you know, this is why it's really frustrating to see all of the FUD, of course, you know, everybody attacking self-custody, saying uh, a lot of people out there who have vested interests, I think, against self-custody, saying, oh, look, even if this, uh, you know, prominent protocol developer can't do it, then why should you believe you can? And and I think that this is an interesting case of actually, uh, you know, being so deep into Bitcoin. And um, I, I think Luke would, once again, I don't want to speak for him, but I think on various occasions he has said that, you know, he's not a security guy. I mean, he's a protocol and a software guy. Um, and so he had this very unique setup with a lot of, of custom attributes uh, and also... I believe that he revealed a lot of that to the world, which in and of itself shouldn't be bad if your setup is secure. You should be able to reveal the architecture of your key management if it's secure. Um, and yeah, I mean, I could tell you my multi-sig. Yeah, security through obscurity is not a thing. But yeah. however, you know, he had so many custom attributes that it seems there were vulnerabilities. And, and this is a... This is... One of those things where I think people should keep in mind the, the Bitcoin motto, you know, virus in numerous, you know, strength in, in numbers. numbers yeah. Now, this applies to many different things in this space. Usually people are talking about you know, the, the cryptographic security of public-private keys um, and the fact that you know, there's so many of them, like that's why they're secure just through entropy. But it's also applicable to your security setup, your, your architecture for managing your keys. If you're using uh, an architecture that you created yourself from scratch, 
then, and nobody else uses it and no one has ever vetted it, you know, it hasn't been stress tested, it hasn't been adopted by other people, then it's highly likely that there are some holes and, you know, you have some blind spots. Like even myself, you know, I, I'm not omniscient. I can't see everything. Having good security is, it's kind of a community problem. Uh, it's, it's the same thing with open source, right? Why does open source work? It's because you have many different sets of eyes, many different perspectives who are all looking at the same thing and attacking it from different ways. So if you decide to go out on your own in Bitcoin and you know, whatever you're doing, uh, if no one else has done that, it's a lot riskier. Yeah. By the way, Delhi's just brought this up. They got my cold wallet too. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that when he talks about his cold wallet, he's talking about these keys that he he may have generated them offline 10 years ago, but I think it's pretty clear that they have been touching the internet at some point since then. Has he tweeted anything else about it since? No, not really. The samurai guy has, though. Uh, I don't actually fully understand what he's saying here. See, one of the interesting things is is updating or modernizing your security mm-hmm. protocols. and Because when I first got in, 2017, I bought a Ledger straight away, um, and I operated with a single hardware wallet. And my actually no, I had two. I had a Ledger which had uh, the majority of my. It was crypto back then, not just Bitcoin. Um, and I backed up my private key, but that was written, mm-hmm. and that was stored uh, somewhere in the house. I didn't have a lot back then. We're talking like say 25 grand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a Trezor which was like my day-to-day, and I memorized the pin, okay? And then what happened is, during that year, that became a meaningful amount of, you know, value. Sure. All on a single hardware wallet with a written... Like, I knew I eventually was in a scenario, but I, I didn't deal with that for a long time. Yeah, if your time. house burned down, you'd have a problem, right? Yeah, I'd be gone. Yeah, I'd be screwed. And so what happened is, I eventually got to the point where I needed to sort this out. Um, so I... The first thing was a metal device. I did that. But that still could have been found in my house by somebody. So I eventually got to multi-sig um, just because of Casa. But when I went back to the Trezor, I couldn't remember the pin. Oh. Yeah. I hadn't written it down. I knew kind of what it was. And I was, I was telling Danny the story earlier because I wanted to transfer it out into my Casa multi-sig. Every time I attempted it, the amount of time to have another go would Exponential go up. Exponential back up. Yeah. So it was, I can't remember what it was. It was like 30 seconds, then a minute, then like three minutes, then like eight minutes. Maybe it was, um, is that Pythagoras theorem, whatever. Whatever. So it was about the fifth try I got it. Because mm. I, I knew the four numbers-ish, I think maybe five numbers, and then eventually figured it out. So I, I got there. But like, that wasn't a, that was a meaningful amount of Bitcoin, but not like a meaningful amount of my stack. But fuck, I didn't want to lose it. And so, like, over time. But I'm now at that point where I've been very comfortable with Casa. But I probably need to test my keys, you know. Well, and you should be getting reminders oh, to like, do health checks. I do get my reminders yes. to do health checks. But to do a full health check, actually, this is another thing, right? I, I've discussed, I've maybe even discussed with you, the idea of publicly stating parts of my security. Like, one of those things, mm-hmm. what I'm happy to say is that to fully test my multisig, I have to get on a plane. Hmm. And I'm like happy to say that. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I haven't got around to it, because I have to get on a plane. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I can empathize a little bit with Luke in that like he's had something, he's worked for 10 years. It works until it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. But you do need to keep updating. 
This is just like following the coins since then. And I think they've actually now like overnight gone into chip mixer, which hmm. I'd never even heard of before. What's a chip mixer? Just a mixing service. I don't know much about it or anything about it. So Luke, Luke, uh, they put Luke Jr. Luke Dasher, stolen coins on the move, started a peel. What's a peel chain? Well, it just means that they're uh, you know, peeling off amounts in multiple transactions. The bulk of the continuing to P2PKH address and then a smaller amount peeled off to P2SH address remaining unspent. The last two peel address types changed it. Like, okay, can they keep following this? And event- uh, yeah, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, the, the, the OXT guys are pretty good at what they do. Um, there, there's a number of folks who are pretty good at on-chain analytics. Uh, of course, eventually, over a long enough period of time, the, the coins just sort of become you know, part of the, the, the rest of the ecosystem. They get dispersed uh, throughout many different wallets and services. And um, it just depends on what the attacker does with them and whether or not they make any mistakes where they could get caught and identified. Presumably that now it's in, with Chipmixer, it's over in terms of tracking it, though. It's definitely a lot harder. Hmm. I hope he's okay. Uh, Luke's obviously been a very important person for Bitcoin. He's done some amazing things. That's why I didn't like the dunking on him. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a controversial figure for a variety of reasons. But, you know, I don't think that that's good reason to wish harm upon him. Yeah, I hope he's okay. Um, Well, yeah. We just have to reiterate to people they have to take their security seriously. They have to keep uh, updating their security, testing their security. Um... So it's probably a good time to then to talk about security planning. I um, obviously get a lot of emails in the show. Some people asking me about security. Um, people bought maybe a ledger and say, what should I do? Like People get very, very nervous about using their ledger, say, for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I have the, uh, it's almost like a copy and paste email now. It's set it up, back up your private key, buy a, um, uh, a metal uh, seed storage device, transfer ten, $10 in, wipe it, restore it, check it's still there, then send you know, yeah. 10%, send another 15%, and then build up. To That's the really one of the most important parts that, you know, I'm actually, I'm kind of disappointed. As far as I'm aware, none of the hardware manufacturers out there say, hey, you should set this all up and then you should wipe it and then you should reload it. Like that wiping and reloading is one of the most important things. And, and one of the, the ways that I think a lot of people lose their coins is they just don't test the recovery. And then the first time they go to test it, they find out something's wrong. Yeah, they make a mistake writing down the recovery keywords. Yep. Yeah, that's, it's the same set of instructions. Um, so I'm kind of looking to you more for your advice. Like if you're... Like, what are the logical steps you would say to somebody brand new to Bitcoin, you know, not technically competent? What would you say the first kind of steps are? Well, it it depends on what value we're talking about, right? You know, if, if someone's dealing with 10 or or $100, then I don't think they really need to put a lot of effort into thinking about security. You know, if, if it's a, a, a trivial amount that you would not really care about losing... The flip side is, I think that whatever amount you do have, you should multiply it by 10. And that should be the amount that you are thinking about 
needs to be secured because, of course, it's a very volatile space, and you can very easily, like you said, go from having you know a thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars, or you know whatever, ten x the amount that you had, and, and your security level is uh, really only appropriate for one tenth of that. So, you know, I see it as you know if. If you're dealing with pocket money, then you're fine just using a software wallet on your mobile phone or your desktop or, or whatever, um, because you're probably not going to lose any sleep if something catastrophic happens to that. Uh, if you know if you're dealing with a level that is you know thousands of dollars, if you're talking about you know a month's wages or more, you know, non-trivial amounts, then you should at least spend 50 or $100 and buy a dedicated hardware device for those private keys. And look, the hardware devices are, you know, the main players are obvious, Ledger, Trezor, Cold Card, and the main ones. Are there any newer ones? That, and do you support any other ones? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of newer ones, and it's, it's actually hard to even keep track of them all. Um, are so, there any ones that you as a company... Right. Yeah. So, you know, in addition, so from Cold Card, you know, based off of the Cold Card platform, there's the Foundation Passport. Um, Can you look that up? That and um, I believe it's uh, Kobo. Uh, we've we've started to add some of these devices that support the. Uh, it's called the UR 2.0 spec. Uh, it's, it's basically, it's animated QR codes for sending the data back and forth. And we really like those. Um, and actually, I think Blockstream Jade just added support for this animated QR code spec. Uh, the reason that I like that is that it drastically simplifies the user experience. Like you don't have these USB cables, you don't have to be plugging stuff in. Uh, you're literally, it's point and shoot. Um, to transfer the data back and forth for the signing operations. That's a cool looking device. Yeah. Yeah, it's not cheap though. Uh, you know, I think I think Trezor still has the most economical, uh, but you know, it doesn't it doesn't have that animated QR code support. So it's it's a little uh, less user friendly. Every time I use Trezor, it asks me to install a bridge. Yeah, basically drivers uh, so that it can talk to your operating system. Yeah, I just trust it and install it. But I I don't like going via a browser. Yeah. I just I just don't like that. Is Trezor still a browser or have they got software interface yet? Uh, well, they have the Trezor suite that okay. I think they rolled out last year. Okay. Um, have you seen the new Ledger Stacks? I haven't got my hands on it. Uh, I, I think I said at the time, I was once again, I was disappointed that they haven't added a camera. And because if they had a camera, they could then have the, the animated QR code support. Right, okay. So my understanding is it's still mostly going to be USB based. Maybe they'll have Bluetooth again, like they did with the Nano X. But um, I'm, I'm not a fan of the Bluetooth stuff either, because I think for most people, just the process you have to go through for pairing Bluetooth stuff is beyond a lot of people's capability. Yeah. They do look cool, these, though. They do look cool. Yeah. I mean, I've seen them in person. They are very cool. And I don't know, um, this is me being an aesthetic person. Uh, I have multiple wallets for day-to-day -day things. Mm -hmm. And just having three or four of them, I mean, they're not, you know, they're, they're not cheap as well, but like having three or four like that is actually useful. But also, I travel with Bitcoin, not a lot. I travel with a small amount of Bitcoin just in case I have to do any transactions while we're away. 
this feels like an easier thing to carry around with me. It feels like something that gets like wallet phone that. Yeah. Um, yeah, very cool. Okay, so like, and then when you get into the world of like a meaningful amount of Bitcoin, you're obviously going to recommend multi-zig. Well, yeah, so it, when you get to what I would call generational wealth, you know, an, an amount that is a significant portion of your life savings and that you're probably wanting to hold on to and pass on, um, you know, that's when you start to want to make sure that you don't have any single points of failure. You don't want one thing to go wrong that could then be catastrophic. So, you know, there's many different ways to eliminate single points of failure. Obviously, we're a big fan of multi-sig because I think that uh, generally makes it easier. Now, you know, multi-sig is more complicated than a single signature wallet. You know, you're dealing with more pieces, uh, you're dealing with more data, um, but also if you do it right, you can end up with a much more robust setup. But once again, this kind of actually goes back to the discussion with Luke. Uh, you know, if you're rolling your own multi-sig setup, you need to be really, really careful about how you do it because there's many different ways that you can screw it up and, and still introduce single points of failure. So if you're going to, to go with multi-sig, then you know, I highly advise using what would be like considered a standard architecture. You know, two of three, three of five, um, not doing anything crazy with like scripts or derivation paths or, or whatever. Um, but the big thing is, of course, make sure you can wipe it all and recreate it. Uh, and, and that's what we're definitely going for if we're talking about something that can uh, go through an inheritance process. Like it needs to be simple, not just for you, but for, you know, your non-technical family and heirs. I think I asked this last time I spoke to you. Um, you've talked then about people rolling their own multi-sig, something I'm never going to do ever in my entire you've life. You've kind of done spot. it. Have I? With uh, Hoddle and Phil Geiger. When I lost my key. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm never going to do that shit. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I trust Casa to roll my multi-sig for me. Uh, in a scenario where you guys are doing big tech upgrades, how much sleep do you lose when you publish the new code? <laughs> Actually... I sleep very well at night because I know that we don't have a threshold of keys that could be used against our customers. Like even if Casa got completely compromised, then no one's going to lose their money. Right. Um, you know, it, it's it's the very simple act of each of our clients having to verify their spending operations on hardware and software that Casa has no control over. That's what helps me sleep at night. Now that creates challenges for us because it means that we have all of these other vendors out there who are changing their software and we need to keep all of these pieces uh, moving and in play and making sure that there aren't you know breaking changes, uh, which happen, like we actually had one happen a few weeks ago, uh, and, and thankfully the, the vendor got it fixed very quickly. But you know that's you know that's part of what you're you're kind of paying for is for Casa to be handling all that like technical minutia and make sure that everything's still operating as expected. Oh, man, I, I could do it. I, I would still lose sleep. 
Um, you mentioned the inheritance plan in there. So on a personal level, that's the one thing I haven't solved in probably the best way possible. Now, look, I know Casa has a plan for that, but just just say you can't afford that Casa solution. Maybe it's a bit too high for you, but you do want to make a plan. Do you have personal recommendations for planning? Because, like, I have some. Um, it puts trust in certain things, which I don't want to explain here. Sure. Um, and I've tried to put a scenario in that doesn't put me in a scenario where anything could be stolen, but mm-hmm. like in a scenario where something happens, things can be brought together. What, and maybe when you explain it, it it's similar to what I'm doing, but is there like certain recommendations for death planning? Because I'm, I mean, didn't that, that dude, that like old crazy Romanian Bitcoin guy dr- drowned? Yeah, Mirka. Yeah, he didn't have inheritance planning set up, uh, uh, supposedly. That we know of. That we know of, yeah. Did he really drown? <laughs> Did he really have Bitcoin? Was he really Romanian? <laughs> By the way, he was crazy, right? Uh, he was one of the most eccentric figures in the space, for sure. Who did he death threat? Peter Wille? Uh, Andreas. Andreas. Didn't he death threat Peter Wille as well? Yes. And I think that was for Segwit. Huh. Interesting. Conversation for another day. Um, okay, so what kind of advice, recommendations would you have for people? Yeah, so... And inheritance planning for these bearer assets is a really interesting tightrope to walk because presumably if you're self-custodying, um, of course, if, if, if you keep all your money with a third party, then you can just give them you know, inheritance instructions and assume that they'll follow that. But if you're self-custodying, then presumably you want to retain control of your assets uh, as long as you're alive, but then you somehow want this switch to flip when you pass that transitions control to some predetermined entity or set of people or or whatever. And of course, this is not something that you can do uh, within the Bitcoin protocol or really any protocol. It's the Oracle problem, right? The None of these protocols or blockchains have any understanding of quote-unquote real-world events. Um, so you, know, you have to get other humans involved, uh, humans who are going to be doing things like authenticating your death certificate or whatever proof of, of death there is. And... You know, there's a million different ways to do it. You roll your own setup, essentially, and some of them may be more trusted than others. I mean, a very naive thing to do would to be, you know, have a trusted friend, family, or attorney, you know, or someone who has like a fiduciary duty to you, and you just give them the keys to the kingdom and pray that they will be honorable and, and not access anything. Um, the more common thing that we see happen is people create what I would call treasure hunts. Uh, you know, right? Is you, you, you distribute keys or you distribute uh, different pieces of keys or, or passwords or whatever all around across you know, different locations, different people. And uh, you know, presumably they will come together and help reconstitute that. And I should know because that's the type of setup that I had back in the day. And I have a lengthy blog post where I went into describing how I did that, but it was very technical and never actually 
You never I, actually I, died. Well, I never even actually tested it from the sense of like making my executors try to follow my instructions. So I kind of broke one of the cardinal rules there uh, that it was not well tested and it very well may not have worked or it may have been too technical for some of them to understand because they had to run this like uh, special Shamir secret sharing software and they had to get you know the, the pieces of the decryption keys from different places. But... Um, you know, we, we um, at CASA, we, we have a couple different ways that you can do the inheritance, but, you know, essentially you're, you're distributing keys so that, you know, you retain access and uh, control and custody while you're alive. And then, you know, CASA can facilitate um, essentially verifying proof of death and signing with the CASA key. And then you, you, you may involve your attorney or uh, another you know, trusted entity who would have one key um, and be able to, to do the same. So you have a key, they have a key. Where's the third key come from? Uh, so the, there's also a, a CASA mobile key, basically your, your account key, it's on your phone. So you give someone access to the phone? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, mine's kind of a treasure hunt. Mm -hmm. um, I can't explain what it is. I'll tell you what. Tell you offline. <laughs> but uh, mine's kind of a treasure hunt. Uh, I probably should just get the castle one. Probably ask Nick to give them to me. <laughs> Nick, give it to me. Um, cool. Brilliant. Okay. A anything else on security we've not touched? Because I do want to get into tech with you. Uh, I think that's enough for now. I mean, security is a, it's another rabbit hole and it's a never-ending battle. So there's always stuff to talk about, but it can get a bit repetitive. So you said it's been a good year in tech. Mm -hmm. What's the thing you've enjoyed most in tech? Definitely AI. Okay. Uh, that's what I've spent the most time playing around with. And you know, AI seems to have gone through a bit of a renaissance in 2022. Um, you know, part of that, of course, is the software, but also there have been hardware advancements that have gotten us like orders of magnitude improvement. So, you know, I was playing around with the image generation stuff. Uh, obviously, the, the you know, chat GPT and, and other um, language text-based stuff. Uh, I actually, I published uh, an article in Bitcoin Magazine that I don't think I've even told anyone this yet, but the majority of it was actually written with AI. Uh, it was this dystopian future uh, CBDC uh, piece. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's an exclusive. What Bitcoin did exclusive. You got to dig that one out. Yeah, I'm having a look. Is that the San Francisco? Yes. Okay. San Francisco 2033 or something like that. Uh, okay. Yeah. Let me, let me, let's just read the first couple of paragraphs. Uh, uh, this is a science fiction piece by James. Okay. Good morning. I'm gently awoken by my smartwatch's soothing female voice. It's a bit robotic, but does have a touch of personality and charm. Today is Monday. It's my birthday. <laughs> Today is Monday, October 31st, 2033. It continues. Your weekly basic income is 3,004. What the fuck? <laughs> and has your weekly basic income of $3,432 has been deposited in your account. 1,049 was held. Withheld to pay your student loan. $2,300 with withheld for your landlord. Blackstone Hathaway. Shit. That's a bit more than last week. There must have been another inflation adjustment. So, so, so what did you do? Did you do it bit by bit? Yeah. Uh, I forget which service I even used. Uh, it, was, it was a you know, 
prompt uh, generation tool where I could write uh, a basic outline of the story and it would just start filling in pieces and then I could sort of roll the dice and, and get different uh, paragraphs and then choose a paragraph and then say, okay, now take this and ingest it and do the next paragraph. And, or, or I could even say, now delve deeper into this character's backstory and so on. Yeah, I mean, look, I love ChatGBT. I think it's amazing. Danny, yeah. Danny, we're using it now. Tell, tell Jameson. Well, we kind of used it as a joke first because it came up in the interview with Danny Scott. And we, I, so when I, when I first played with it, I typed in some prompts to get a podcast description and it was pretty good, but, but we didn't use it. And so then after the Danny Scott show, we did actually use it in his description. And I don't think they're good enough Do you all want to the it, time. Bring it up? Yeah, I will. I don't think they're good enough all the time, but they give you a really good structure at least to work from. I mean, it's a bit like with Rail Bedford. I do the match reports, but mm -hmm. actually what happens is the commentator writes a match report and then I go through it and, and like update it. Sure. Just get in the style we want. But it saves me hours because he's done the majority of the work. Yeah, and, and that's really what I think AI is going to be doing. It's not going to be completely displacing jobs. It's going to be another tool that gives people an order of magnitude performance improvement with what they're doing. So this was 100% written by AI. Okay, in this episode of this podcast, I sit down with Danny Scott, the CEO of Coin Corner, a Bitcoin exchange based in the UK. Danny has built Coin Corner into a successful business without relying on VC funding, and he shares his insights on the challenges and opportunities of doing so in a highly competitive world of Bitcoin. During our conversation, we discussed the current state of Bitcoin adoption and the importance of making cryptocurrency accessible and user-friendly for those who are new to the space. Danny shares his thoughts on the role of the Lightning Network in driving adoption and how it's, you know, it's pretty, I haven't actually read this. It's pretty good. Yeah. And there's like, as I read it, there's a couple of bits I'll change. So like uh, making cryptocurrency accessible. Yeah. Uh, it would be of either the, making the cryptocurrency or Bitcoin accessible. Overall, it's a fascinating conversation. That's a bit self-indulgent. Yeah. Overall, it's a fascinating conversation with a true industry leader. Tune in to hear Danny's insights on building a Bitcoin business, driving adoption in the future of Bitcoin industry. Do you know what I do like about it? But maybe I don't like about it. It feels more polished. It feels of something like maybe the BBC would do. <laughs> well, maybe they're using AI. But there's bits that are a bit cringe, but like you could use that and then build out off it very easily. Well, if I was writing a description, I reckon something like that is spend 15, 20 minutes, but with chat GBT in doing two minutes. Yeah. You just read through and edit it. Yeah, I much prefer to edit something than have to write the whole thing from scratch. And you are testing it for something else? Well, after the show with David Zell, someone got in touch and said we could put input the audio from the podcast and use it to generate show notes, mm -hmm. which would be would definitely save time. Yeah, and I've been doing that myself. Uh, I just wrapped up a month-long uh, archival project where, you know, my problem is uh, pretty much every interview I've ever done is hosted by other people. <laughs> and uh, over the past 10 years, uh, link rot sets in. You know, people take their sites offline we, we lose content. And so I got tired of that happening. And so I wrote some scripts to basically uh, suck down you know, every video and MP3 that I've ever been in over the past 10 years. And uh, once I had them all, this is 45 gigabytes of files, I then wrote some other scripts to extract the audio and then yet another script uh, and doing this all in bulk, of course, uh, to take those audio files and transcribe them with uh, OpenAI Whisper. Okay, but is the finding bit, is that AI or is that just Google search? Well, the finding bit was easy as a result of my OCD because I already have 
all of them linked on my website. So I wrote a script to basically parse through all the URLs on, on my website. Can you bring up ChatGPT? Yeah. I just want to try something here. Uh, try this one. Tell the story of Jameson Lop, because this is what is good, and Peter McCormack's Day of Fun Shooting Guns. This is what I love. I've done so many of these, just like stupid little things. Oh, oh so it's looking sad. for a story. <laughs> See, that's weird, because used we used to have it right in stories. Maybe if we say, tell me a fictional story. Ah. Mm. Yeah, so that's weird, because it used to do that. I was getting yeah. it to write stories. This actually goes back to censorship. You know, they've really been clamping down on what the AI can do. All of these, all of these different AI services, because people are abusing them. Hmm. Yeah, but hold on. Then what's the point in having it? Are they, are they worried about, like, university kids? having their coursework written on it? There's so many different things that people are worried about, uh, whether it's just like low-level bias, biases that are you know, inherent in this stuff. Because you know, all of this stuff is being trained off of data, and all of the data is being generated by humans, and humans have biases, and so it's going to be representative of some subset of humanity. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did – all you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Also, today we have my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. 
which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. I mean, it's, it's like the internet or Bitcoin can be used for good or bad, right? Yeah. Um, we know that with Bitcoin, and uh, I always go back to Peter Van Valkenburg's Senate testimony where he said, for every person you talk about using Bitcoin for money laundering, I'm going to tell you about somebody using Bitcoin uh, in Nigeria mm-hmm. to campaign against uh, police violence. I always think that's a, a great way of telling the story of technology. AI, we can use this to write descriptions and save us time to do show notes. I'm going to come back to that as well, by the way. But also, kids are going to be able to use it to not have to do coursework. It's The cat's out of the bag. Well, this is kind of like security. This is going to be a never-ending battle. Uh, so, you know, I've already seen stories of professors and teachers saying that they're suspecting certain students of using these AI uh, text generators to you know, do their essays for them. Uh, and then just in the past week or so, we saw one university student create a quote-unquote you know, AI detector. Uh, I but, heard about this. But this is going to go back and forth. You know, the, Then the AI is going to be modified or people are going to basically be hacking, you know, quote-unquote hacking. Uh, uh, with this, it's really it's more about trying different prompts to work their way around the filters. Um, that, that's what I would say these AI hackers have been doing is we're understanding that the people who are running the servers for this stuff, um, you know, they're, they're filtering things, especially on the image generators, because, of course, there's a lot of crazy stuff you could do there. But there's <laughs> yeah. always ways to work your way around it. Uh, you know, these are essentially, uh, n- this prompt generation is a new sphere of kind of programming language. It's just not a very well-defined programming language. And so, uh, you know, people are trying to really... F- push the limits of what's possible with it. And as they do that, the the folks that are running these services are then saying, oh, we need to stop that. And so it's just, you know, the same old, same old uh, issue of censorship. So interesting, Danny's just doing a test on an AI content detector. And this is the um, description from that Danny Scott show that was 100% AI. And, and it thinks it's 2% human generated. It's pretty mm. good. Yeah. Interesting. Go and get one of our other descriptions. All right. And just see what happens with that. Going back to the show notes, Danny, Mm -hmm. what I don't know is if it can read the content, how does it know what is something we would want as a show note? Again, I think it probably gives you a massive list and you would then have to just um, edit it. Yeah. Uh, Same with the timestamps. How does it know what a section is? I don't know if it could do timestamp. No, it can. The guy, the the, the email I forwarded you this morning, right? Mm -hmm. That was, he said he can do timestamps. Um, if it gets to the point where it can do show notes, timestamps, and um, transcriptions, like it puts it puts people out of work for us. I mean, here you go. I've just put the uh, another description in that was human generated, and it's got it 100. percent That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. So I wonder how it's doing that. None of the, the rules are, but look, whatever. Mm-hmm. The, the the cat is out of the bag with this. Yep. Um, people use it for good, and people use it for bad. I think in this scenario, there's a lot of good that you can use it for and efficiencies. The downside of that is people potentially losing jobs 
you know, uh, you could identify that in our world. Um, I struggle to see too much evil it can be used for on text generation yet, but it feels like we're now in this very early stage of this AI thing that might move quickly. Yeah, I mean... The robots are coming. Well, I think the very first thing I would look at is, you know, what do a lot of scammers do and why couldn't you have an AI bot that basically follows the rules for some particular scam that people perpetrate over the internet? Mm. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Can, can you ask them to write code? Yeah. I saw somebody said they put some coding, I can't remember what the language was, and they wanted to convert it to Python and and it converted it to Python and executed and worked instantly. Wow. I can't remember what, what, can you think of a language you would convert from something to Python? You said save two days of work. Huh? Save them two days of work. That's Jeremy saying, so you've seen that tweet, yeah. So do you remember what code it was? Like from what? I don't think it was a function. I don't remember which kind of function. I don't know if it was JavaScript or not. So two days of work was saved, converted from one programming language to another. Again, fascinating and great. Puts people out of work, potentially, but drives efficiencies. Well, I mean, if if you think about it, as a programmer, I've always found it to be incredibly inefficient, uh, basically with the interface of how I talk to the machine and how I instruct the machine of what I want it to do. This is why programming pays so well and why it's so difficult is because it's because the machine does exactly what we tell it to. And you, the vast majority of time, what we're telling it is not actually what we want. Uh, and that's because of the limitations of programming languages and just the complexity of, of software. So, you know, my ideal future is a Star Trek future. You know, computer, you know, create a, a simulation that does this thing. And then, you know, a few hours go by and it gives you the result or whatever. And even, even past that, you know, right now we, we have text-based AI. We're, we're, we're prompting it now with, instead of having to learn the syntax and semantics of some foreign computer programming language, you're able to use English uh, and, you know, probably other languages. I'm not familiar with, you know, what they've done with regard to other foreign languages, but there's no reason why you couldn't use any human language. And even that, that's a huge leap forward, but that is only the beginning. Uh, I, I actually wrote an article about Elon Musk and Twitter and, and stuff earlier uh, last year where I said, you know, what I'm really looking forward to is direct neural interface with the machines. Now, of course, there's pros and cons, mm-hmm. but if you think about it from an efficiency standpoint, of course, there's huge security ramifications, but from an efficiency standpoint, even what we're doing right now uh, me having to think something, then having to translate it into English, and then it has to get transferred, you know, uh, you know, through the air and and interpreted by your ears and turned into signals in your brain. That is incredibly inefficient. When uh, there's no reason why we couldn't have a direct, you know, neural electrical signal to neural electrical signal interface. Yeah, but do you want that? Well, yes, I'm sure this will create more dystopian outcomes as well. So Danny's found the tweet. I just gave ChatGBT 200 lines of JavaScript code and asked it to translate the code into Python. The code passes text using regular expressions. It was complex. Two minutes later, I had Python code that worked flawlessly. The thing just saved me a couple of days of work. That's fucking insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my... Well, so firstly, I think, I think Twitter is going to get damaged by this. 
I think there are nefarious actors uh, and as well as just some morons who are going to spin up accounts with chat GPT and start arguing. Oh, I've seen them already. And, and I've actually, I've, I've, I've run the Turing test questions against some of them. And it's been <laughs> obvious that, you know, they're not human. Mad. But like, it, it's just going to get to a stage where talking to people you don't know is going to be pointless. Like, I almost going to get to a point in my Twitter. I just like only want to see people I know. Uh, that's going to become pointless. Um, but I, I'm, I'm also like looking forward towards this kind of not, not looking forward as an excited, but just looking forward considering like the singularity of all these technologies coming together. Quantum, AI, Neuralink. I think it's a bit shit. <laughs> I think I don't want to go and live in a cabin and only like speak to humans and have no technology. I can see a scenario where people start to reject technology and want to live without it. I can see a scenario where I get a bit older and I'm like, do you know what? I don't want a phone, maybe an old dial-up hand phone, and go and live in a cabin somewhere with a dog. Danny pops around occasionally. Well, yeah, I mean, especially if you're being bombarded with uh, noise all day long. Uh, and, you know, I'm an optimist, so I think that there will be solutions to all of this. Uh, and you know, One solution, for example, um, to the issue of noise and reputation on social networks uh, is actually something I've talked about a few times, a hive. Uh, they're essentially mapping uh, social networks. They're starting with Twitter, but they've mapped something like 400 different quote-unquote communities or you call them interest groups or uh, specialties on Twitter. And you know they're just using the sort of connection graphs uh, to show you know, where are people focusing their attention. And this, it's, it's a very hard thing to fake. You can spin up a million bots, mm -hmm. but you can't convince a million people to follow them. Um, unless you're a really good bot. <laughs> yeah, unless you're actually creating real valuable content, in which case, you know, maybe it's a signal bot, you know, not a noise bot. Um, What's that <laughs> film where the guy falls in love with an AI bot? Is it him, her, she? Uh, her. Her? Yeah. Have you seen that film? Yeah. I mean, a brilliant film. She was pretty convincing. He fell in love. Yeah, I'm sure that will happen. Yeah. It's when they combine it with a real doll. <laughs> Have you ever seen that film, Lance and the Real Doll? Yeah, it's a good film. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's just like all going a bit too far. Well, well, well this is the thing, right? Is that This is why it's great to be a technologist because uh, technology is not just going forward linearly, it's accelerating. And so it is very exciting uh, to keep track of. I mean, it's also very scary because you know, humans generally don't like change, uh, or at least we, we like to say that we don't like change. We're very adaptive humans. So in hindsight, you, know, you look back over the past few years or decades or whatever, and you know, change has been crazy, and yet we somehow keep adapting to it. And so we will keep adapting. It will keep creating more and more weirdness. You know, uh, if someone from today is looking 10 years in the future, I can guarantee you their mind will be blown. But the people who are living in the present day in the future will be like, yep, this is how things are now. What about combining AI with CRISPR? <laughs> And just saying, like, yeah, like some fucking crazy kid in his dorm. Yeah, create me something that is, uh, yeah, as dangerous as Ebola, but spreads like COVID. Map it out. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of ramifications when it comes to biotechnology. Uh-huh. Um, I'm especially afraid of you know, nanotechnology. Um, there's this one dystopian apocalypse that's called the gray goo scenario, but essentially that's a scenario where uh, nanobots go out of control replicating and there's no way for us to stop them and they turn the entire earth into nanorobots and there's no way to escape them. Oh, man, see, I just want to go and live in a cabin. I don't, I don't know, it's too far. I, th- I kind of feel like we've got to live through this like golden age of technology and then we might also, because of the exponential nature of technology, live through the start of the dystopian era. I yeah. know you're an optimist. Well, I mean, but there's also the great filter question, uh, which this is, this is more of an astrophysics question of like, why don't we hear signals from other species? Fanny's you know? paradox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, the, the simple explanation is that uh, every species that becomes sentient and develops technology that is sufficient to start creating signals that propagate through the universe eventually also hits this inflection point, which we may be close to, uh, wherein the power of the technology becomes uncontrollable and they destroy themselves for one of a million different reasons. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus Christ, man. All right. Um, what about Nostra? Yes, uh, that's an interesting new protocol. Uh, what is it? I think it's notes and other stuff transmitted by relays is what <laughs> it actually the acronym stands for. And uh, a lot of people are looking at it and saying, oh, it's the new Twitter. But it's not a social network. It's literally just a protocol for passing messages around a peer-to-peer network. And these messages are you know, cryptographically signed and they have some interesting attributes. But there's a lot of pros uh, of you know, what you can build on top of a network like that. There's also a lot of challenges that are going to have to be overcome if Nostr is going to become a you know, globally adopted network. So you could, so it is a protocol, but you can build a Twitter on top of it. Yes. Yeah. So whatever its main challenges, because I mean, look, most people listening to this would have heard of it. A lot of people signed up and checked it out. Yeah, I mean, there's some scaling challenges. There's some security challenges. Uh, you know, like one of the problems right now is that you have a single public-private key pair and you're reusing that for everything. So if if that ever gets compromised, you're screwed. Like there's no way to revoke that and change to another key. Uh, You know, I think that's going to be addressed, of course. Uh, You know, you would would want perhaps some sort of hierarchical deterministic wallet where you can, you know, migrate what what key you're using. Um, You know, there's also, um, you know, ways to do that with like decentral decentralized identifiers of which there are a number of different projects out there which would allow you to have like your identity that is then separate from the actual keys that you're using for this. Um, and also right now, most people who are using Nostra clients are literally pasting their private key into an internet connected device. Uh, there's a few ways around that as well. And you know, hopefully you'll, you'll eventually just have your, your dedicated hardware device that you'll use for that. Um, on the scaling standpoint you know this is kind of it's kind of like bitcoin in the sense that it's it's kind of like a flood fill network uh you know all of the relays are essentially listening to each other and you can filter things out um but in general right now uh if you you broadcast a message and it's you know correctly signed it's 
generally going to go to all of the other rel relays out there. And so there's a question of, you know, how much can that scale before we start to see some limitations, whether it's bandwidth limitations, disk storage limitations, what are the incentives? What is the game theory of the network? Um, you know, is it denial of service uh, protected? So like when you run a Bitcoin node, uh, Bitcoin node software has a ton of different denial of service checks that uh, it's running whenever it's receiving new data. And if you do something to violate any of those, uh, it considers you a bad peer and it basically cuts you off and it stops talking to you. Um, I don't know the Nostra uh, relays well enough to say if they have enough like denial of service checks built in. If they don't, then there's going to be some growing pains and I expect uh, you know, more tools and rules are gonna be built around that. And then there's, there's also just the incentive question of who's running the nodes, uh, why or how are you going to let, you know, other random third parties like connect to your node? Um, you know, are you going to require some sort of small fee? Uh, I know there is an improvement proposal that would um, allow you to actually attach some proof of work to your Nostra messages. I don't know how widely that's been implemented, but that's just, you know, a high level gist of, you know, there are, open issues that are going to need to be resolved, but I expect that the network is going to continue to grow. It's gonna have growing pains. And uh, as long as there is sufficient interest and in development around it, then people are gonna find solutions to these issues. Okay, we, some we need to play a little bit more with, so we'll check that out. Is there anything else that excites you? Good question. I mean, most of the stuff that I've been doing has has been around AI and combining different aspects of AI. So I think people, people see these tools and they don't really extrapolate what the tool is going to be able to do in several years. So like we see people creating images and right now all they're thinking about is, oh, I can type in a prompt and I can get a, a cool two-dimensional image or whatever. But obviously that's only the beginning. You know, the next steps we're going to see, you know, three-dimensional models. I think this is already starting to happen. Um, you, we should expect that um, architects and designers and game designers and whatever are going to be able to use AI to start generating entire virtual worlds. I've already seen uh, AI image generation added as a plug-in to 3D modeling tools wow. so that you can say, you know, I've created this landscape or this cityscape or whatever, and I don't want to have to spend days like finding and applying textures. I'm just going to type in a prompt and I would say, you know, make this building look like, you know, Gothic architecture from the 1500s or whatever. Boom. So, uh -huh. um, you know, this is why I say I, Sure, AI may get rid of some jobs, but in general, it's just going to accelerate our productivity and be a new set of tools that, much like how computing and the internet in general has affected every industry, I think AI is going to have a similar reach. Yeah, well, until we place, replace ourselves with robots who are more efficient, yeah, there will be that transitionary stage, which is Neuralink. Yeah. And then we'll just replace the bits of it. Like we won't need the the body because the body's fucking useless. We can probably make a better body, and then we'll all be gone. Yeah, uh, but then I mean, 
kind of getting back to Bitcoin and stuff, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Lightning Network has definitely uh, been interesting to see all of the, the new developments that have been going on there. Yeah. Um, I think in my annual report that I put out recently, you know, I showed that uh, the actual like, capacity of Lightning Network, uh, it's gone up in Bitcoin terms over the past year. I think it's gone down a little in, in dollar terms, of course, due to the exchange rate. Um, but up in Bitcoin terms is a better measure. If you're using it as your, your unit of account, yeah. Um, but, but in general, you're, we're seeing more and more businesses that are, are building on top of it. And, and you know, who knows what's going to happen once we have other assets and other tokens on Lightning. Um, but I also think that you know, this is going to you know, supercharge a number of just other networks and, and, and services in the ecosystem. Uh, kind of getting, getting back to you know, Nostra again, um, I, I had a tweet where I said, you know, it's, it's actually quite appropriate that Nostra was invented by a Lightning developer because I think that you know, that's going to be a very important integration in order to get the incentives right, right. For, for a network like this. And, and you know, if we can get to a point where we really have these decentralized peer-to-peer -peer networks where the incentives are such that you can access them and, uh, and use them by actually paying for what you're using and doing all of this without AML, KYC, and privacy ramifications. You know, this is getting us towards more of the you know, anarcho-capitalistic cyberpunk future that I've been trying to build for a decade. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very exciting. I, I'm with you on the AI. The AI is very exciting, but I, you know, I think it's really cool that Lightning's growing. I think the different use cases people are discovering for Lightning. I love this idea of moving fiat money around the world on the Lightning network and bypassing banks. I think that's a super cool idea. So, like, I think there's lots of cool things happening. Um, I can't believe after five years we're actually sat here doing this again. Um, that is also... I wonder if we'll be here in five more years doing this. If, if we are, then, uh, you know, it's, it's once again, it's going to be another order, order of magnitude of weirdness that has transpired since then. Yeah, we, we might record it in the metaverse. Mm. And Danny might have been replaced by AI. <laughs> we might have generated all the uh, surroundings using AI. We can generate it to look just like this. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I was really interested in VR, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, there was a number of VR-related meetups and stuff. That seems to have plateaued over the past couple of years, but I'm hopeful that, you know, something like Neuralink will actually be, like, the next step. Um, you know, it's still, it's, it's very clunky to actually put on a headset yeah. and uh and there's a number of things you have to configure if you want a good uh, vr uh, setup where it's, it's driven by a pc the standalone ones just don't have enough processing power to to do the same level of uh you know of video graphics and, and whatnot but um well there's competition coming into that market because apple have just announced theirs kind of kind of kind of leaked yeah we'll see um I mean, look, I've got an Ocul I've got the original first Oculus Rift. Um, when I've used it for what I've used it for, I've loved it. Not for gaming. The gaming, there's just not decent games. But the more exercise side of gaming, I have liked. So uh, there's like a thing where you use like, 
these discs fly at you, either punch them or duck under them. Like, it's a good workout. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the boxing game, which is an unbelievable workout where you feel like you're in the ring. You need that feedback. So, like, if you hit, the like, it feels like you're being hit. Yeah. Uh, or it pushes your head back. But as a workout, it's fucking insane and it's fun. Um, that's the only stuff I've really liked on it. And also, like, and getting people to walk the plank and then pushing them over. Um, but that's it. But I, I'm I'm interested in it. I, it just feels like there isn't enough money in it for the developers to make the game. I'm like, the boxing game I like is made by one dude on his own. Yep. You know, it's not like you've got Square Enix. Is it Square Enix at the company? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not like they've got, like, hundreds of people working on single games yet. So, like, I think maybe if we get to that point, uh, I think it'll be interesting. Have you got, have you got a VR? Nope, never yeah. done it. Never, not even. Never tried it. Next time in the UK, I'll show you it. All right. You got to do. Have you done the walk the plank? Oh yeah. The funny thing is, I I did the walk the plank in 2002. What? Yeah, I know, right? This is actually not a new thing. Were you just walking on a plank? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was when I was uh, hunting for universities to go to when I was in high school. Um, I went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and they had one of the preeminent graphics departments. And they had uh, a room about the size of the house that we're in right now that okay. was their VR lab. And, you know, this is multi-million dollar equipment back then. But they let me uh, go through a simulation, which it was a plank simulation over, you know, it wasn't over... Um, like the one that you did was probably at the top of a building. Top in a of city. The, the one yeah. that they did was literally just over like a pit. <laughs> you know, it was much more simple, but it was the same type of effect where you f- would feel like you would fall off. Do you know this walk the plank? Thing? Yeah, I've heard you talk. About yeah, it. It, I'm telling you, like I'm not somebody who loves heights. Um, like you feel it. Mm-hmm. You believe you're up there, and I can do it. I can like look under my uh, like uh, goggles. I can see my floor. And then I can look up and I'm, there's no way I'm jumping off the end of that plank like that. I just can't do it. I think, I think I like the idea of VR. Um, I like, I kind of like the idea of VR in a world where we can make the podcast. Mm. We do this in person because you cannot replicate this conversation we're having over Zoom. It just doesn't work. It's different. It's a different conversation. You have, the latency is different. Different emotional connection. Everything about it's different. I think that gap can be closed uh, with VR. I believe it can be. So that's maybe. I tell you what, if it's ever available, we'll do that one first. You and I. Absolutely. Jameson, good to see you. Thank you for coming in. Appreciate everything you do. Uh, appreciate you from episode three of what Bitcoin did. Um, where do you want to send people to? Well, the easiest way to find me is at lop.net, L-O-P-P.net. And from there, you can find all my resources and Twitter account and so on and so forth. But I, I think the short version takeaway of a lot of this stuff, you know, you seem to focus a lot on the dystopian aspects. I'm the techno optimist. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, humanity is going to continue to keep stumbling forward. And uh, there's there's not really too much use worrying about the million different apocalyptic scenarios that may or may not happen. I will try and be more of an optimist. Uh, thank you for everything you've done, not just for me, but in Bitcoin and just being a general badass. Appreciate you so much, man. All right. What did you make of that? Did you enjoy that? It's always great to get Jameson back on the show. Yeah, he was the third interview I ever did. The first time I flew out for a show 
And uh, yeah, we stayed friends since and always love getting him on the podcast to talk about Bitcoin. But you know, it was a lot of fun to talk about AI and chat GBT with him as well. Now, listen, the Luke Dasher stuff, I think this isn't a good example of why people cannot handle Bitcoin security themselves. Luke Dasher's setup was particularly unique to him. That's been around a long time. I am a big supporter of people storing their Bitcoin with their hardware wallets. I don't think it's particularly difficult. I think my sponsor Ledger does a great job of making this easy. So I'm not buying this whole distraction that people cannot manage their private keys. They can. The wallets that we have available now have come on so far. Even the multi-sig wallets by the likes of Casa and Unchained are pretty good. So yeah, I'm not buying it. Anyway, big thanks to Jameson. Loved making this show. Some of that AI tech is now becoming more readily available. And you know, we're even looking at it ourselves. So pretty cool stuff. Okay, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. My email address is hello at what Bitcoin did. Have a great week and I will see you all on Wednesday. <laughs>